Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Craig Lauer, your host from Vanderbilt University. Uh, this is our second installment of the annual meeting coverage on the Peds Ortho podcast, and I am so thrilled to bring this to you. Today, we will talk about the award sessions papers, um, and you will have to stay tuned to get insight on those. And then we will also have coverage of our concurrent sessions, and finally, the symposia from Saturday. I want to give some recognition to my co-host, Julia Sanders, as well as Carter Clement, who, as you'll find, did the bulk of these recordings as I flew home for the tail end of the meeting. But we are very pleased to bring to you the second half of our annual meeting coverage, and I hope you enjoy. All right, this is Julia Sanders, uh, one of your co-hosts back at the annual meeting, and I have the pleasure of having Lindsay Andras from uh, CHLA here to discuss a, a very interesting paper that she presented at the award session today um, that I have a personal stake in. So it's our, uh, our data on um, functional bracing for uh, femur fractures in place of spica casts. So um, Lindsay, tell us a little bit of a recap and uh, tell us a little bit about all the interest we've garnered today. Yeah, so the impetus for this study really started in 2016 when um, I came to POSNA and saw um, Dr. Kramer presenting on um, using a custom-made functional brace uh, for treatment of femur fractures. Um, and I returned from POSNA 2016, very enthusiastic to switch over to that and never use spikas again. Um, and then we encountered some logistical challenges in trying to institute a custom-made brace. So we theorized uh, that we could maybe have some pre-made sizes and have them custom fitted instead of custom made. And through the generous support of a clinical research grant from POSNA, we were able to start that process. Um, and we presented our results to date um, uh, today. And so far we have had equivalent radiographic outcomes with the functional brace to spica casting. Um, and uh, I think really been pleased with it overall in terms of um, how, an alternative to treat these kids without anesthesia. Yeah, thank you. That was a great synopsis. And I'll just put in a personal plug. This is really, I think, a game changer for us in the field. Um, I'm going to be switching over as soon as um, we can get some logistics worked out and as soon as we finish collecting for the study. So uh, check out um, in the POSNA program and uh, hopefully soon to be published data uh, about the study. And uh, really excited to take any questions that anybody might have about it. Please feel free to reach out to either of us. Thanks, Lindsay. Thank you. And thank you for your work on the study. And we are back with more from the award session. I am joined by a good friend of the podcast, Dr. Woody Sankar from CHOP. We got a lot of solid CHOP representation this morning. Um, no one out there is going to be surprised to hear that his research was featured among the award stuff this, uh, this morning. So Dr. Sankar, would you just briefly tell us a little bit about your study and really for something complex, as much as you can boil it down, what should the audience take away? Yeah, so Carter, thanks for uh, the opportunity. This is a great podcast that you guys do, and, and I'm lucky enough to be have been on it before, and it's fun to be on it again, especially for those of you that couldn't be in Vancouver. You missed a little rain yesterday, but hopefully we're, uh, we're giving you some of the information that you can take away from this program. So um, basically the study we did uh, looked at a series of patients who had isolated, closed, or open reductions. So we didn't include the neuromuscular kids. We didn't include kids that were older that got osteotomies. Um, and we were basically looking at um, acetabular remodeling, which is a topic that a lot of people have been looking at recently and a topic that I have a lot of interest in since I take care of a lot of these kids and follow them out. And I'm still trying to get better information uh, about who 
is going to need something later in life, um, who is going to be more adequately remodeled uh, and not need anything. Uh, and I always ask myself as a surgeon, if I'm going to try to minimize anesthetics on these patients, should I be more aggressive up front and trying to understand who those patients are that might benefit from a more aggressive initial approach? So this study looked at um, uh, about 68 uh, patients, I believe, in the 60s, um, uh, who had either isolated, closed, or open reductions, and it would include both medials and anteriors. We followed them out for two years, which has been shown in the past is pretty much where the bulk of vascular remodeling occurs uh, from Stu Weinstein's data. So we followed them out for two years, and then we compared their acetabular index um, at, uh, you know, at final follow-up to the normative data that's been published by Eduardo Novais. But in this particular study, what we were looking at is on the post-operative MRI, uh, which we routinely get at three weeks after surgery in the spica cast, we basically measured uh, several um, indices of acetabular morphology on that MRI. So in particular, I was interested in the cartilaginous metrics that we often do osseous metrics and the analogs of. So the cartilaginous acetabular index, um, uh, a cartilaginous extrusion index, um, some cartilaginous sector angles uh, on the axial views and so on. So we were trying to find out if there was something on that post-operative MRI that might inform us about um, how the patients might behave two to three down, years down the road and how important it was to make sure they stay up in the system and at least to counsel families that this may be a second stage coming. So what we found in our study is that uh, nearly 70% of our patients had residual dyspatia based on a very objective um, 90th percentile cutoff of the acetabular index. So, you know, not, I think a lot of studies in the past have been flawed by um, using further surgery as a definition of dysplasia, but that, that has very poor um, indications. So we were pretty objective about the definition of dysplasia. Um, and we did it in two years. Uh, so that was a very high rate. Um, I, in my mind, would say, you know, I saw my patient be 40%, 50%. So it's a little bit higher than I uh, have even thought in my own practice. So very significant. Um, we did not find a difference on whether patients had a closed or open reduction. So as long as the reduction was good, it seemed not to make a difference in acetabular remodeling. Uh, and then uh, I think perhaps the most important finding we found is that the cartilaginous acetabular index, which is exactly what you would think, it's the uh, AI just measured to the edge of the uh, cartilaginous onlog before it turns into labrum uh, on a coronal slice of the pelvis. Um, we found that 23 degrees was a significant cutoff. So if the cartilaginous acetabular index was over 23 degrees, um, patients had a 7.6 times increased risk of having residual dysplasia at two years, which I think was an, it's a nice number that you can stick in your head, uh, and it's a reasonably easy measure to make on a coronal MR uh, that's done in the spica. Um, and we also found that um, some of the smaller things, like having an inverted limbus, did not make a huge difference in our acetabular remodeling. Uh, and obviously, the more concentric the hip was based on a kind of qualitative assessment of the reduction, um, the better the acetabular remodeling. So is it possible to say what x-ray finding does a 23-degree cartilaginous index correspond to, or is it just too variable patient to patient? Yeah, it's too variable because um, I think we, if you look at a lot of these MRs, sometimes the onlog is enormous and sometimes it isn't. Um, and, uh, you know, often these, you know, I would say typically the, radi the radiographic AI on these patients heading into surgery is like, 30 to 45 degrees or something. So there, you know, it's an area that everybody would say is dysplastic, um, but some of those have very nice, nicely formed onlogs and some don't. Fascinating. Well, thank you for the work. Thank you for all your advocacy and support of the podcast. And it's a pleasure as always. Yeah, it's been fun.
Right, and we are back. I'm here with Dr. Patrick Whitlock uh, from Cincinnati Children's, who gave one of the award presentations this morning. It was a big honor. He uh, had a slightly bigger honor a few months ago when he came to Children's Hospital of New Orleans as the visiting professor, but uh, this was pretty a pretty good honor, too. So, uh, Dr. Whitlock, would you mind telling us a little bit about your study? Thanks, Carter. So we looked at uh, using a bioinductive 3D printed scaffold to treat large osteochondral defects in a pig model. And our goal really overall long term is to be able to treat large defects of the femoral head, but we're starting with this model basically to um, test our hypothesis and, uh, as a proof of concept. And so what we did was look at uh, creating large defects in the knee of uh, adolescent pigs and then <clears throat> treated those with oats, uh, negative control, and um, our, uh, our bioinductive scaffold. And what we saw was good evidence of early integration of our scaffold, uh, good blood vessel formation, um, good cartilage formation, and good bone formation, all the things we're kind of looking for. So it's a good initial three-month study, and our six-month studies are actually on, on study right now and ongoing. So what is, what's the scaffold made of? Can you tell us a little bit about sort of the, the process, what it is, how you make it, and why it, it might be a better alternative than allograft or other options? Yeah, so the, the real goal with the scaffold is that it can kind of be 3D printed and made to fit any defect that, you know, a patient has. So it's very patient specific. The other advantages to it are that it is spatially uh, designed, meaning it has a bone layer and a separate cartilage layer that are... Um, basically formed by printing decellularized matrices from bone or cartilage into the appropriate layers to then release growth factors, proteins in a somewhat, not necessarily organized fashion, but in a spatially organized fashion to produce cartilage and bone where we want it. So is it literally allograft tissue that's being sort of compiled by the 3D printer to fit the patient's defect in their femoral head? So it's human allograft tissue that's been dissected to where we just take the cancellous bone part and the overlying articular cartilage. We separate those, we decellularize those, we put them into a small, what's called a microsphere, which is then blended with our polymer that we used to 3D print with to give us kind of a cartilage or bone-inducing filament that we then 3D print the scaffolds with uh, in the appropriate size and dimensions and everything else. Truly amazing. Um, thank you for your time. Congrats on the award. And I hope the audience has enjoyed this uh, sci-fi section of our show. It's just so cool that that is uh, being done and works. Thanks, Carter. All right, we are back on the air. We have just finished up the Friday morning award paper session. I'm here with Dr. Jason Inari from CHOP, as usual, picking up awards and recognition. And he is going to tell us real quickly about um, the paper that he just showed to the audience. Well, Carter, thank you for, uh, for having me. Uh, if I had to give you the 30-second version of the, uh, the paper, it's that uh, if you are treating kids with uh, early onset scoliosis from spinal muscular atrophy, it's that a, a brace should be considered uh, rather uh, than as a corrective measure for de spinal deformity, but instead to prevent decline of functional outcomes. So you can uh, allow them to sit up a little bit easier, uh, stop uh, spending energy to sit up and free their hands to do activities of daily living. So basically a soft TLSO works for SMA? Uh, you know, it's not a true soft TLSO. It's a little bit harder. I've been using a, a Boston 
uh, or a meta style overwrap, so there is some structural support, but uh, it's not that typical uh, rigid uh, brace that you're really pushing on the rib cage and uh, correcting deformity uh, as you would in your AIS patient population. Okay, gotcha. So I'll often use a soft TLSO for neuromuscular just to help them sit up in the wheelchair, basically, and maybe delay surgery, but this is a different different thing than that. Yes, uh, I'd say think of it somewhere in between the two. Uh, it's got some rigidity to it, uh, so you can uh, let the kids sit upright independently, uh, which a lot of these type 2 kids are now doing really well, uh, and freeze up their hands, but it's not uh, so hard that it's going to cause a parasol deformity or deform their chest wall. Awesome. Let me sneak in one more SMA question. What are you guys doing at CHOP for patients getting fusions and spin rasa? Uh, so... Uh, a bunch of different things. So for the early kids, uh, we stay away from the spine. So, you know, non-ambulators, rib to pelvis, ambulators, uh, you try to stop somewhere above where they can still inject uh, nusinersen. But for the fusions, my preferred approach is uh, I do a two-level lamy, uh, usually at 3-4, depending on how low the construct is. And I put cross connectors between L1 and L4, and I call it a box. That way the uh, PM&R doc or the neurologist can see it on x-ray, and you give them a big, wide space to, uh, to inject the intrathecal medication. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the, uh, the research and the teaching. Uh, thanks for having us. Well, this is Carter, and we're uh, back again after another session. We just had an excellent concurrent sports session, and uh, I'm here with the two moderators, Dr. Ted Ganley from CHOP and Dr. Melissa Cristino from Boston Children's. And uh, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to be with me, and uh, I think the audience would just love to hear your highlights from the, uh, the afternoon. Great. I think um, we had some really great papers. Um, you know, one I think really important one was from Dr. Maluski um, about timing of ACL reconstruction and chondral and meniscal injuries um, and showing that, you know, more than 60 days for meniscus, more than 90 days for chondral um, pathology um, does come with an increased risk. And I think that's important. And many of us try to take care of patients within that window anyway. But I think that it's a really important um, study to document that. Um, it's not only five months, which is, I think, the AO. Um, guidelines, but it's, you know, really 60 days and 90 days would be ideal to take care of these patients. Yeah, that was a great addition to the literature. Out of curiosity, there's been some other studies on that after the JBJS one last year from, I think it was Mistovich and um, Fabricant. I started putting all those ACL patients on crutches while they wait for their surgeries. Do you guys do anything post-op or just try to get them in fast? I've been trying to get mine in uh, efficiently and then counsel them. I haven't used crutches, but I've used a little bit of bracing if it sounds like they're a little more active. I haven't done crutches either, except for if it's like a bucket handle and we can't get to the next day or, you know, yep. if there's going to be a little bit of a lag, I try to keep them off that. Perfect. Great. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we had an, uh, some really excellent dialogue. I'm honored to be a uh, co-moderator, Dr. Cristino. Uh, we had a really interesting uh, paper from Dr. Astori from Australia. Uh, they have a national registry, uh, and they looked for patients that had sustained uh, ACL ruptures. Uh, that Prior to reconstruction, they noted an increased incidence of valgus um, uh, prior to that, to their surgical intervention, so, so relative to the opposite side. Uh, and then they noted uh, that that was not... Uh, any worse after they did the reconstructions, but it wasn't better. Um, so that we found that really interesting. Dr. Yiming Yen uh, from Boston uh, really uh, had a um, great study looking at uh, anterior lip 
uh, tibial spine displacement. Uh, and while the base of the, ace, of the uh, tibial spine was secured, uh, if there's a prominence um, at the anterior uh, aspect and it was up proximally, it did not significantly affect their range of motion or their outcomes. Um, and then finally, uh, Dr. Uh, Cristino uh, uh, described a bear uh, versus ACL reconstruction. As you know, bear is the, uh, is the repair technique uh, described um, out of that center. Um, and those patients in the bear trial uh, fared better uh, from, from a psychological readiness standpoint um, relative to the ACL reconstruction patients, and that was using the RSI score. Um, so all, um, all excellent studies. I uh, really enjoyed the, the discussion. And I think another couple studies that um, the audience really got engaged with and asked a lot of good questions was um, uh, the partial ACL um, paper by Dr. Hannon and some of my colleagues at Boston Children's. You know, partial ACL tears are really sort of ominous actors, and I think having that good physical exam is really important. And her study really highlighted that there's a significant percentage of, you know, the partial ACL tear diagnosed diagnosis that goes on to failure and insufficiency and needing surgery, which I thought was helpful. Um, and then Dr. Green's study um, looking at um, uh, lateral extraarticular tenodesis in, in skeletally mature and immature patients. Um, I think I was impressed by their, you know, um, low failure rate and also the fact that this is now described as being safe in kids. I think a lot of people wonder about that. How close am I to the physis? So I found that really helpful. Yeah, great points. Thank you, guys. Lots of great contributions to the literature and stuff that sounds like it's going to uh, be changing practice soon. Really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. All right, well, we are back on the air. We have just finished up the, the Friday afternoon spine session, or the first half of it, rather, and I'm uh, lucky to be here with the moderators. That's Dr. Ron el Hawari and Ying Li. I will turn it over to you guys. Will you please uh, let the audience know what you liked, what you were uh, taking away from the session? Well, we had two papers that looked at risk factors for proximal junctional kyphosis, and one paper specifically looked at the rate of PJK after a posterior spinal fusion for Sherman's kyphosis. And that paper showed that you should try to, um, or you should make every effort to have your upper instrumented vertebra be T2, because that um, will decrease the likelihood of the patient developing PJK. And then the second paper looked at the rate of PJK after posterior spinal fusion in cerebral palsy. Interestingly, that paper did not find that the upper instrumented vertebral level was predictive of PJK, but they did find that increased preoperative thoracic kyphosis um, was predictive. Uh, and there's some uh, great talks looking at uh, neuromuscular and syndromic scoliosis. Michelle Welburn from uh, Portland. Uh, presented uh, their experience uh, with patients that have osteogenesis imperfecta and they looked at uh, over 2300 patients with OI and uh, they distilled it down that only 3% of those patients required uh, spinal surgery for their scoliosis. Um, difficult to ascertain which patients will progress uh, if they develop scoliosis but a lot of insight as this is a little bit different than the uh, rate of scoliosis previously uh, reported for OI. Um, the second paper comes out of Baltimore, and that's uh, uh, Aaron Brandt uh, had uh, presented their experience with SAI screws in patients with cerebral palsy, and uh, they had a 10-year follow-up uh, for these uh, patients, and they, they were able to demonstrate um, 
acceptable curve correction uh, in the coronal plane as well as improvement in pelvic obliquity that was uh, maintained uh, not just to two years or five years but to ten years uh, and beyond and it was a great description of, of, of that study. That's awesome. Anything uh, that you guys feel like will change your practice or maybe reaffirms things you've been doing? Always go to T2 for Sherman's kyphosis patients. Yeah, it reaffirms that dogma, doesn't it? And then something to keep in mind for the future, um, the group out of Boston Children's, uh, Craig Birch presented their experience with robotics uh, and navigation in pediatric scoliosis, and they were able to execute their uh, preoperative uh, plan in over 99% of their patients. Um, it's a bit early to tell what the long-term implications will be, but it's a great first start uh, for a pediatric spine to form the use of robotics and navigation. Yeah, perfect. Very exciting. Well, thank you guys so much uh, for your work as moderators and for joining me. All right. Well, here we are again. We are wrapping up Friday afternoon. The last concurrent sessions have just ended. I'm sitting down with Dr. Ben Martin from Children's National in D.C. He was a moderator for the uh, HIP session. And Dr. Martin, please uh, let the audience know what, what you liked, what you found interesting, what you're, what you're going to remember. No, we had some uh, great talks on uh, DDH and hip dysplasia. There's a lot of interest in you know, duration of, of, of pelvic harness and also duration of when use of braces after harness, like a weaning protocols. Uh, there's clearly a lot of controversy out there. A uh, lot more questions probably than answers. Uh, but it does seem that kind of prolonged bracing might not really be all that beneficial. And so maybe kind of once the hip is kind of in uh, and stable and the, the parameters are normal, it might be enough and you might not need to do kind of long-term bracing. Perfect. What are you uh, What are you doing right now? Or let me say, what are you going to be doing with those patients uh, after this meeting? Well, I, I mean, I think I don't think we have the answers yet. I mean, there are have been some studies. Uh, Dr. Sankar has published one showing that bracing does help up until about 15 months. So I, I think it. I think we. What we. I took away from this is that we probably just need to be more scientific in how we research it, and to really understand the true duration of pelvic harness, but also potential use for bracing to help the acetabular index at two and five. Awesome. Well, thank you on a uh, successful session, and uh, thanks for your time. So uh, we are back on the air. We have just finished up the uh, the end of Friday, the spine spe spine session, and I am joined by Dr. Feroz Mianji, and uh, he is our local host in addition to being the moderator for this session. So uh, first of all, congratulations on almost being done with this week. Thanks very much. <laughs> Um, second, I'm sure like the rest of us, you have to get back to a double busy clinical week next week, but Absolutely. so it goes. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, just let the audience know any, any takeaways or any favorites from the session. Sure. Um, well, they were all favorites. They're um, excellent papers, um, you know, ranging a broad uh, sense of topics. The first three were on VBT, and I really enjoyed Anthony's paper on spontaneous lumbar curve correction following uh, thoracic VBT. It was nice that he showed um, the more correction you get of your thoracic uh, tethered curve, uh, the better your spontaneous lumbar curve correction. So it's almost in keeping with our, our fusion um, literature, which is quite uh, entertaining and interesting. Um, I think uh, Noel's work with the MRI on um, and uh, discs uh, following tether is going to be really important. Uh, she has some excellent uh, one-year data, um, so it's really nice, and I think she's uh, really going to provide uh, very, very good um, 
information to our literature going forward. Uh, so I, th I was I really enjoyed that. And then finally, you know, tether breakages are a real concern. Twenty six percent in the cohort from uh, Baron Lawner in New York um, really um, uh, highlights the importance of looking at these patients uh, in a longitudinal way. Awesome. And last question, anything in particular that's going to change your practice or uh, reaffirms what you're doing in your mind? Yeah, again, I'd, I'd uh, circle back to Anthony's paper. I've always struggled about uh, 1C curves uh, and should I do a thoracic and lumbar tether. But uh, if he's telling me that, you know, if I correct them pretty nice and they're going to modulate nicely as well, and I can predict that, then I might just uh, end up doing a single uh, thoracic tether, not a double tether anymore. Awesome. Well, thank you. Uh, congrats on a... Uh fantastic meeting in your city. Thank you very much. It's been great having Paws Now here. All right, we are back on the air. It is Saturday morning now. We just finished the Critical Issues Symposium. It was entitled, What Would We Like to Know? And it's about basically what sort of research we should be doing going forward. I'm here with the two moderators, Uni and Ryan from Toronto Sick Kids and Ray Liu from Rainbow Babies. And uh, I will just hand it over to you guys if you wouldn't mind telling me and telling the audience what you learned, what you thought was interesting, and uh, what your main takeaways are. Yeah, so this was, a, this was a symposium to try and see can POSNA help direct research in, uh, in ways. that We have directed grants through POSNA, but we don't actually direct anything currently. So this was, a, this was a, an initiative to see if we can identify big questions that are important to our members and also, more importantly, in, important to our patients. And, uh, and identify these um, and put them out there so that members can, can then subsequently propose research ideas for how to address them and uh, receive grants for that. Yeah, but re research is one of the three pillars embedded within the mission of Poznan. And it, uh, after education, um, the biggest, it, you know, spend each year is on research and they invest somewhere approaching half a million dollars a year so you want to know that that money is being well spent and so it seems uh, you know a, a reasonable thing that Posner and its members should be engaged in an exercise to identify you know what are the important questions for us to, to answer uh, and to serve as a nudge, if you will, uh, to research to say, all right, we'll pick those and then that can inform some of the funding decisions in these pilot studies that can then go on to get extramural funding from, from, from bigger, bigger sources. So that's, that was the rationale for this, to start the conversation, uh, to get um, engaged and active uh, researchers in each subspecialty area to begin the process of, of identifying the top three to five uh, questions and using that as a launching pad, if you will, to start the conversation with, with you know, in this symposium, uh, with, you know, with the, the past and the incoming research council chairs uh, to take advantage of their collective wisdom on how best to go about this, uh, about this process. So this is just the start of that journey and by no means, uh, you know, contained within just this symposium. So I think we can all agree it's a great goal to uh, prioritize research. I think we can probably not agree at all on what the uh, the best topics are for you guys from the the session are there certain topics or directions that you know specifically um, came out either to the whole crowd or even just to you as the the real priorities moving forward we, we had some specialists from from the different fields um, to identify three to five research questions that they felt were the most important I think it was a very important starting point to just get a sense as to what people think the most important questions are but, but really a more formal process is going to be necessary 
So the, the next step is to, um, is to go through a more formal process. Um, Jim Wright mentioned the James Lind um, process that's been described in the past. Um, and, and that will allow us to, to do this in a more consensus style. But we wanted to start off to just get people thinking about this idea and, and, and to put some ideas out there. So there is a virtual symposium component that goes with this that's 80 minutes long that, that, um, that lists all of the, those uh, content experts' thoughts on this. Yeah, uh, and I'd add that, you know, taking this the next step would be to go back to the membership perhaps with a, with a survey to say, all right, so this is what these people came up with, um, you know, obviously leaders in their each subspecialty areas, what have, what's missing here, uh, what should we add, and then um, at least from a Posner standpoint, come up with then within each subspecialty area what the, it may be the top 10 questions, and then maybe go through an exercise of, of, of ranking that. But as Ray, you know, uh, suggested, the real rigorous way of doing this is also to go to patient stakeholders, to actual, um, and, and, and there is methodology that is developed that, um, that we, can, we can harness to actually uh, to do that. And ultimately, you know, if, if, if these topics or these research priorities uh, can, can live somewhere perhaps in a, in a, in a publication, um, but it's endorsed by Posner, then it might influence extramural funding agencies to say, you know, if the field has recognized these are the top questions, when you submit a grant um, that addresses one or more of these priorities, they're going to pay more attention potentially. And they'll only pay more attention, not just that the field endorses it, but also, you know, the patients who are going to benefit from this. And, and that's something we've, I don't think we've, we've done in the past and we should be considering. And uh, just to help the audience feel a little bit like they were there. Can you tell us about any of the specific uh, topics that were suggested, even if they weren't sort of agreed upon, just to uh, give a little bit of flavor? Group benefit, which ones are just transitory mm -hmm. and, and maybe more of a faddish type of uh, option. So I, th I think there's some, some really good options out there that we need to pursue further. Great. Right. And, it, and it's not just clinical uh, uh, questions. Um, you know, others uh, pointed out that maybe we should Doing, be doing more on the etiology. So Maurice Bouchard, for example, uh, talked about, you know, is it idiopathic clubfoot? Uh, what can we do to make it not idiopathic, where we understand what the what the what the <laughs> cause might uh, what the cause might be, but may influence uh, things. So, again, this is just the start of a, of a of a conversation. By no means are we suggesting that this list is the is the final word on the on on, on the on the subject. Absolutely, more about the method. Um, well, thank you guys. It was a, a big, exciting topic. Uh, could be kind of a tough one to host, and you guys did a great job with it. So thank you very much. Thank you, Carter. Thank you, Carter. Well, that about wraps it up. That is all the recorded content we have from the annual meeting, uh, thus ending part two. Um, I do want to again thank my co-hosts, Julia and Carter, for doing most of the work on this particular episode. And we want to thank Josh, who is, of course, with us in spirit. Um, I did want to just get feedback if people would uh, email us, pedsorthopodcast at gmail.com, or uh, find us on Twitter. Uh, go ahead and let us know what you thought of the annual meeting format, if you would like this to continue for future years, or if you liked the live uh, event that we did last year. Uh, let us know. We love to hear feedback, and of course, this is uh, the podcast for the positive community, and we want to make it all about you all. Uh, I just want to say on a personal note, 
Uh, I loved when uh, you all stopped by our booth when we were there and um, had some really positive impressions and really good feedback uh, from you all. So uh, I hope that if you saw us, you felt welcome to come over and uh, we really uh, appreciate hearing, uh, hearing from you all directly. Um, I want to thank Matt Achin for a fantastic meeting and of course thanks to our local host Kishore Mopari and Feroz Mianji. Uh, Vancouver was really beautiful and such an interesting host city. I can only hope that we can keep those good vibes going next year in, in the hometown uh, for me in Nashville Music City. Um, so looking forward to annual meeting of 2023. The next thing I would like to mention before signing off and this is directed to our resident listeners uh, we will be starting a new effort uh, within POSNA called uh, POSNA Community. This will be a regular resident webinar meant to discuss cases and give career advice and in general give some conversation and mentorship to people who may be considering a career in Peds Orthopedics. The date for this event is going to be Tuesday, June 28th at 8 p.m. Eastern and will be held via Zoom webinar. That link will be posted on the uh, resident review blog, which you can, of course, access through the POSNA homepage. Uh, so more information on that coming. We're very excited uh, for that. And then uh, lastly, we will be back to our regularly scheduled programming later on this month as Josh Holt brings us a mystery guest to be determined. Um, so uh, we want to give a heartfelt appreciation to all of our listeners and to POSNA for letting us do what we love. So thank you uh, to everyone out there. And we will sign off for now. Take care. Thank you.